This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I flipped my perspective. I remember saying to myself, no, I'm not a minority. I'm actually unique here. You know, I am not an immigrant. No, I am an international. And no, I'm not just a woman. I am a multitasker. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. And look out for our how-to episodes where Claire and I dissect tricky career issues and share tips and advice to help you navigate the toughest of times. So don't stop. Sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello, everyone. Boy, do we have a fascinating episode for you today. Indeed we do. If you've ever wondered about what we'll be eating in 10 to 15 years time, then you're listening to the right podcast. We sure are. Our guest today is Cecilia Tan. She's a social technologist and futurist, and I think she's probably got the coolest day job. She's based in Barcelona, where Cecilia works for Alpha, which is the future-gazing arm of Spain's giant telco, Telefonica. It's all about audacious thinking and technology predictions in order to solve big world problems, including the future of food. Yeah, I think Cecilia has really got the most awesome job and we'll hear about that very soon. But not only that, she's also founded and co-founded three separate ventures, including a maker cafe, co-working spaces and a coding and tech academy for women by women. Cecilia was raised in Macau, but attended high school and university in the US, Harvard no less, and then she found herself in Spain having to start from scratch, language and all. Absolutely. Now, in this episode, you'll learn how Cecilia's former husband's gift of a sewing machine first insulted her and then led to her uncovering a passion and her first entrepreneurial venture. What trim tabbing is and why it makes her more productive, and you potentially. How Cecilia managed to turn her mindset around and be comfortable being different to everyone else in the room, and how she and her colleagues are looking at future scenarios where you'll be able to grow an entire meal, including meat and veg, with the one plant. Yes, you heard that right. Grow your dinner. It's really extraordinary stuff. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the multifaceted and dynamic Cecilia Tam. 
Cecilia Tam, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute joy. And I know you're talking to us from Barcelona. I believe you're in the middle of a storm while we swelter in the heat. That is correct. That is correct. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Well, the way we usually like to open the show is just for our listeners to get an idea of who you are. I would like to ask you, how would you describe what you do today? Just in a couple of sentences. Sure. So I am a social technologist. It is not a term that people use a lot to as a title for their work. But what I do is I look for technological solutions for global challenges. And so many times I seek out very specific social impact issues and I try to match that with the technologies that I, I think could scale up the solution. Wow. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Right now, I think you're working with Alpha, which is a, a Spanish huge telco. Uh, or Telefonica. Or Telefonica, sorry. Alpha is the arm of Telefonica. Would you describe it a bit like a Google X that Google has? Yes, yes. I would consider this to be a kind of a X arm to Telefonica. Correct. Yeah, fantastic. And you're working with a couple of hundred people working on futuristic moonshot assignments. Is that right? That is correct. Um, one of the very few companies in the world that are actually working on moonshot scale of projects. Yeah, fantastic. I can't wait to get into that. But before we do, we would absolutely love to learn more about you and your journey. And if we go all the way back to your childhood, what was it like growing up and where did you grow up? All the way back. It's been a long, long time. So my parents are Burmese Chinese. And so my parents moved to Macau when they had a chance to Burma back then or or Myanmar, as you would call it, was a dictator. Well, it still is. And they they moved when there was a little tiny bit of an open window and left the country. And And I say that a lot because when I went to visit my cousin's in Myanmar 15 years ago, I saw a glimpse of their life. And every single time I think about them, I thought about the fact that if my parents had left, my life would have been very different. So I, I wanted to acknowledge that. So my parents moved to Macau, which is where I grew up. And yeah. I spent probably most of my childhood there. Macau, as you guys might have known, it's a Portuguese colony. Oh, it was a Portuguese colony for many, many years. And I think that that set up a tone in my life because very rarely you get to live in a place where it is so polar in their culture, right? You have the Portuguese, you have the Chinese. Mm. My parents are from Myanmar. And then all of these culture kind of, for me, it was normal growing up. But in hindsight, it kind of gave me this very diverse background and understanding how to approach culture and people. And I think it also kind of grounded me and wanted to move into the social impact space. And then I moved to the US, had my education there, starting from Atlanta. I went to Emory, uh, studied biology. I wanted to be a doctor, but didn't get good enough grades to actually get into med school <laughs> and had a moment and thought, why don't I study architecture? Yeah. What made you think to study architecture? I don't know. There's something I was drawing a lot. I was a studio art major. I really liked art and I thought, you know, why not? And I spent a summer being an intern in an architecture firm, and I and absolutely loved it. And for a specific reason, I think very few discipline allow you to kind of 
merge the two very opposite worlds. There's going to be a theme going on here. I, I really like opposites. But in this specific case, you have, you know, the arts and the, and the abstract and the conceptual kind of uh, spectrum of architecture. But then you have the other end of, you know, the, the rigor, the structure, the engineering, the hardliner of things. And, and so that was what was very interesting for me. And so I got my architecture degree. But then after I finished my degree, I decided to take some time off and uh, went to South America. Wow. Well, we'll stop there for a minute. I'm really intrigued about this move that you made from Macau to the US because you you made it sound like it was just, you know, it just happened. But I can't imagine it was that easy. Did you speak English at the time? Um, No, in Macau, we were taught Portuguese at school and I spoke Chinese at home. English was more of a a third language, um, kind of once a week kind of a thing. So I did not speak English. It was hard. So what was that experience like? Again, you know, you talked about opposites. It sounds like you went from, you know, Macau, where you've got, you know, a very, very different culture to the US, which would have been like a different planet, I would have thought. Yeah, it was it was my first time on a plane for such a long ride. Uh, I was 13. In Macau, it's a small, small, small place. You can probably walk around the whole entire city in less than, I would say, a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> and you pretty much kind of have to find yourself very, very quickly. I remember the first year I, I couldn't follow class because I, I didn't speak English. And I, I had to learn English very, very quickly, not only to learn English. I remembered telling myself that I had to speak English with no or very little accent because I wouldn't have survived middle school and high school. I I remember sitting in front of, um, you know, CNN and just repeating what the presenter would say just to make sure that my pronunciations were correct. And I would do that for months and months on end until I get the pronunciation correct. Wow. That sounds just like it was a really challenging and formative experience for you. How's it impacted you, do you think, now in what you do and where you've gone? I am very, very grateful for all of my experiences because I feel like one of my strongest traits is that I am very resilient. So having moved to multiple places, have lived in multiple you know, cities, worked in different things, I tend to have this outlook of everything is going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I always come back, always, uh, without exception, come out stronger, whatever that obstacle that I, I had to face. So, yes. Amazing. And it sounds as if you've really, the resilience comes in your mindset and the things that you say to yourself. What else do you say to yourself apart from it's going to be okay? There are a few things that I say to myself, and you're absolutely right that this is an outlook, this is an attitude more than anything else. You know, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. When I moved to Barcelona, it was on another struggle because, you know, I landed in the country. Again, I I didn't speak the language. It was a struggle because I couldn't find work. And I remember distinctly saying to myself, poor me, you know, I'm a woman in a man's world. I remember saying to myself, I'm a minority, you know, mostly, you know, at that time, 18 years ago, there were hardly any immigrants from the East, at least here in Barcelona. But I also remembered distinctly telling myself a few years after, no, I'm not going to assume that role, you know, of being, I don't want to say victim, but like as the kind of like disadvantage party. I could actually change this. So I I flipped my perspective. I remembered saying to myself, no, I'm not a minority. I'm actually unique here. 
you know, I am not an immigrant. No, I am an international. And no, I'm not just a woman. I am a multitasker. You know, I would relabel myself. And this is also when I started thinking very hard about label as this kind of a single story to define myself. So I'm, I'm very much against labeling myself and other, other people because I think this really limit our understanding of the world and of other people. So I'm very conscious of trying to understand it in a kind of a multi-perspectival way. I really love that that reframing technique that you used and it is so powerful if we can flip the soundtracks that we play to ourselves which are so often diminishing and unhelpful into constructive and positive and amplifying soundtracks and it's such a powerful technique. So how did your entrepreneurial journey begin and what did you do? I remembered my daughter was just about four or five years old, and I was pregnant, actually, with my second child, and I was really bored at home. So my my ex-husband at the time, he gave me a a sewing machine, (laughs) and I remember that Hmm. he was just sitting in the kitchen table, and I didn't touch it for a while. I thought it was very insulting, (laughs) but it did come from a good place. He meant well, and I started using it. And I was completely, I mean, I, have you guys tried a sewing machine before? Have you guys sew? Yes. Cecilia, if you had seen me at the classes at high school, like I was a home economics walking disaster. So well, I'm bad. I'm the opposite. I actually, <laughs> I loved it. And I had a little business when I was 15 making horse garments using my sewing machine. So I know exactly what you mean. That is amazing. So I didn't have that moment until I was, you know, in my in my thirties. And the first time I sewed and I put two pieces of cloth together and you know you know how that feeling is. I was blown away. I was like, wow, did I did I make that? Did I just make that? And and it was so perfectly sewn. The spacing was beautiful. I mean, I don't want to go into like the, that moment, but it was mind-blowing to me. And then the one thing that hit me the most at that moment was that I realized every single time I make and it doesn't matter how, how minor it is or how imperfect it is. It builds a little bit more confidence in me. And it created this kind of ball rolling that I have capabilities. I just have to discover what those capabilities are. And so that was that was the defining moment. But more importantly, I was thinking to myself, what happened if I bring all these people makers together in one place? And that was kind of the idea of the co-working, which we called Makers of Barcelona. How did you, you know, from a stay-at-home mum, how did you make this happen? It was very hard in the beginning. I didn't know where to get the money. You know, I knew the amount that we have to arrive to. Uh, it was somewhere around 60000 70000 which at that time as a mom, you know, a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and I remembered going to the government first, talking to them and asking them for advice. They said they, they weren't sponsoring or subsidizing any projects like this. But then I, I knocked on several doors. I knocked on friends that I shared office with. And I told them that I have found this beautiful space. Would they like to join? And they said yes. And I was super excited. The first yes you have ever heard in your business journey, that is a confirmation of that you're going the right way. So that kind of pushed me to the next level. And I started talking to universities that were visiting Barcelona to teach architecture students, kind of like study abroad uh, program. And I pitched it to a couple of universities and lo and behold, they said yes too. And then it gave me even more courage. I went back to the government the, the third time and asked them for subsidies. And they still said no. 
But this time around, it was quite different. They said at the bank, they're giving out these grants and or very, very cheap loans to companies and startups that I should look into, which I did. And from all four of these different things, I, I managed to raise enough money and open the door of the co-working within one month, already populated with 40 new members. And so, wow. um, and that just kept going. And now we have three co-workings in Northern Barcelona. Uh, I would say we are the, one of the largest uh, community. How fantastic. And it's brilliant, isn't it? When you get that momentum, when you're starting something and it just starts to grow and, and you know, I, I get traction. Yeah. I really, we really know that feeling. It's, uh, it's fantastic. And, and now, you know, you've got the three co-working spaces, but you went on to do other entrepreneurial things as well, didn't you? I absolutely did. Being a, a maker and always craving to make things, whether it's, you know, sewing or businesses. And I, I would guess in about a third year into our co-working space, I went to Japan and I remembered visiting some friends in Japan. And for the first time, I visited a space called Fab Cafe in Tokyo. And Fab Cafe was this magical place. I walked in, I remembered it was a coffee shop and I remember seeing children, probably eight years old on the iPad drawing. And I thought to myself, how, how strange, why, why, you know, you have a bunch of kids here drawing on the iPad, what, shouldn't they be socializing, hanging out with each other and be playing games with each other? Well, what they were doing was that they were making drawings on the iPad and then putting them into laser cutters so that they could customize each of their cookies for their birthday, for their eight-year-old birthday. Oh, wow. wow. What a great idea. Love that. Only in Japan. Absolutely mind-blown. At that time, I said, I have to bring this back to Barcelona. And so... And this is exactly what I did. And I talked to them and I thought that was a great idea. Brought it back, put it right uh, attached to the first co-working here I had. In, you know, you have the makers of Barcelona, you have Fab Cafe. The Fab stands for fabrication. Also fabulous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was my second venture that happened. And there's a third one as well. This more recent. And I'm really, really proud of the work. And so one of the kind of decisive moment for me uh, as an entrepreneur was that it's not just about me being an entrepreneur and actually building a community of entrepreneurs. The next venture, which is all women, also with an ex-employee. And all women is, the story goes that a couple of years ago, I went, Laura and I, my, my co-founder, went to a conference and it's a day conference with 27 speakers, of which 25 of them are men. Well, Yes. And we looked at each other at that moment and said, this is wrong. We are going to change this. This, this was a tech conference here in Barcelona and were, you know, women are hugely underrepresented. And so we got to work and we opened up All Women pretty much a couple of months later. And All Women is a tech and AI training school for women by women. And we have been running it for about a year, year and a half now. And next month, we will be signing up 35 new students. Uh, and we have successfully placed many of these women into companies. And we're extremely proud. I am extremely proud of the work that uh, Laura has done so far. Absolutely brilliant. The more more women we can get into STEM, the better. And, you know, I'm really curious because it sounds as if you've got a heck of a lot going on. You know, you've got three different entrepreneurial businesses that you have built and that are still going. And yet you're also now doing this role with Alpha. How do you balance everything? How do you manage all of this stuff? Oh, that's a super good question. I'm not sure I do. (laughs) I think my strength and my weakness are two sides of the same coin. I get 
very, very excited with new ideas, new things. I'm very good at coming up with ideas from scratch, from starting out of nothing. But with that, you know, what do you do with a lot of these ideas? Uh, you have to turn them into kind of reality. You have to kind of implement those ideas. And sometimes that's kind of sort of my, my, my weakness and it's my frustration. But what I do is I, you know, going back into my experience as an entrepreneur, you, you just have to take them by small chunks. Uh, but the other thing that I actually, this is a real term that people use. It's called trim tab. Trim tab. Trim tab. I love this term. And I just recently discovered this term, but I've been using kind of this ethos for a while now. And trim tab is this little tiny bit of uh, that is sit on the rudder on the plane. And it's very, very small. And the idea of trim tab is that uh, it's a very small piece that will hugely affect the movement of the aircraft or the, of the boat. And the notion of trim tab in our effort to do things is that how can you make the least amount of effort but with the most amount of influence or effect in your work. And that's kind of my modus operandi. So what is the minimum that I can do with the maximum uh, result? And so I always look for those, I guess you would say shortcuts. Yeah, I love that idea. Can you give us an example of how you've done that? Yes. Do you, uh, either of you code or program? No, unfortunately not. We'd love to. We're going to learn. You should. You should. It's very, very gratifying. And so when I started learning programming, uh, one of the things that I would do is instead of writing everything from scratch, there are loads and loads and loads of codes out there that you can pretty much just scrape, copy, paste, modify it. So the copying, you know, they, they would do 80% of the work and your modifying would be just 20%. So if you can leverage existing resources, existing references, existing, you know, things that you can just leverage and place yourself at the 80% and so applied only 20% of your effort into uh, customizing for you, then you have a trim tab situation. Yeah, right. You know, it sounds like you're systemizing things as well to make it easier for yourself. I'd love to bring us back to your work at Alpha, you know, working on futuristic moonshots. Can you give us an example of sort of a theme or a kind of a future world, uh, be it food or technology that you're you're working on? Sure. I, I love to talk about the project uh, I worked on last year, which is on the topic of food. And I, I love food. <laughs> we <laughs> so all do. do. We. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love to eat. I love to enjoy food. And I, because I'm a social technologist, uh, last year, I actually two years ago, um, that I really wanted to look at the, the impact of food. And, and this is a topic that is pretty relevant today uh, as we're noticing the climate change, right? So specifically at that time, I was looking at how the meat agriculture had impact the environment. And it was very disturbing for me to see how beef production is extremely, extremely non-ecological. So I did a little experiment before I started uh, to look at what technologies could solve this. And the experiment was that I, I became vegan. I became vegan for a good couple of months. What I wanted to see, it wasn't so much as what it feels like to be vegan, which was also very interesting, but how hard it is to be vegan. Uh, either of you guys vegan? No. No. Okay. No. So what was really surprising for me to learn was that once once you become, uh, you know, uh, you have the routine finding out where to buy things, it was really easy. What was really hard was that I did not know how many things have animal product. I did not know that medicines have animal product in it, wine have animal product in it, my makeup, my, you know, shower cream, wow. all had animal product in it. It's completely infiltrated. And that part 
was really, really hard. And so uh, once I discovered, you know, how hard for the society to be able to kind of uh, remove the products from it because it's everywhere, I tried to look at uh, alternatives. And so uh, as you guys have heard, you know, culture meat right now, it's kind of sort of, you know, the thing or plant-based meat. And so I, I look into this that angle and I was also looking at what are some of the alternative ways to culture this meat? Because right now, uh, culturing meat in a kind of a laboratory setting or even in a factory setting is still not a very economical or even sustainable way. So we were looking at, with the team at Alpha, we were looking at alternative means. And one of the things is that we were looking at if plants can become the scaffolding for the structure to grow uh, the cultured meat in. And it turns out that there have been studies that shows that, for example, spinach, they were able to grow a human heart inside a spinach leaf. And uh, that was really surprising and very, very interesting trajectory in the science of it. We came up with this idea called plantable meals, which means that in the far future, we're probably talking about the long run of uh, 10 to probably 15 years, can we cultured meat inside a plant, like a tomato, for example, um, and you would have the full entire meal planted inside one plant, and you can grow this at home. It would be, you know, complete nutrition for your family, and you can just, you know, without packaging, and it will be very sustainable. Is that a possible future artifact that we could explore? And that was one of the projects in the far future of food that we've done at and when you say meat in like say in a tomato do you mean like would it actually taste and be like meat so the science is not quite there yet that you can cultured uh, meat inside a petri dish right now you can culture meat in and a bioreactor for example and they are able to successfully implant heart cells into spinach leaves so there are actual animal cells that you take from an animal and then you culture them inside a plant or a petri dish. But yes, it will be meat. Wow. That is crazy to think about that. Yeah, for sure. It's also so non-intuitive that, you know, this giant telco, Telefonica, through its arm of alpha is looking at these um, amazing things. Can you paint a picture for us and how do you spend a typical day at Alpha coming up with these and exploring these possibilities? I have to say, I, I do love my job. Part of my job specifically is to actually look into the future. And so we do a lot of future casting. We look at a kind of a, a runway of, um, let's say, 7, 10 to 15 years. And very often what I do is we build what the future scenarios look like. I know what ingredients in that future will kind of create the context of the project that we'll be sitting within. And so we talk very often about futures and not future because because there's no way to be able to figure out a you know a single singular path to the future so we have to be prepared to multiple scenarios and so that's that's one we also you know and i'm, I'm going to go back to my background and my culture is that very often I, we look at these futures from multiple perspectives so not just from you know a western perspective but you know what what about sino-futurism or afro-futurism or famine futurism and understanding these futures in a very different diverse perspective will also give you different outcomes of what those products could be like or what those artifacts could be like and so that's predominantly my job is to build those scenarios and then uh, reverse engineered the pathway to you know, where we are now and how do we get there? Because at the end of the day, my job is 
how can we make the better future faster? Right. Do you watch a lot and read a lot of sci-fi? Like how do you come up with these multiple scenarios? <laughs> I, I love Black Mirrors. <laughs> I uh-huh. love uh, years and years. Uh, I, I watch a lot of these shows and I, I find them absolutely fascinating. Or scary uh, or terrifying. Or scary. Ter- uh, ter- <laughs> absolutely terrifying. Years and years. I can only watch an episode sort of you know, drip feed the episodes. I can't watch them back to back because they're just too <laughs> intense. Intense, yeah. It's just too much. Yeah, and, and Black Mirror as well. And I think they, they uh, these sci-fi's they're they're wonderful in a way because they are kind of sort of the prototype of what the future looked like and how people react to it, right? And so uh, in a lot of ways to give a lot of information. But most important than not, we built these contexts out of looking at the past. It sounds kind of contradictory, <laughs> but to be able to see the future, you have to be able to draw the path of where we came from, where we are now, and where we're heading towards. And so one of the examples that I can give you in the food project was that we were looking at trends. And one of the main trends that we have noticed is kind of what we're calling the coupling and decoupling. That's happening across science. That's happening across multiple fields not just in food, but we applied that kind of transfer that into uh, the, the food science. And we, we said to ourselves, well, what happens if you can decouple food? And what does that even mean? Right. Should I go on? <laughs> yeah, was, what, yeah. What does decoupling and coupling mean in that context? In that context. Food? What we were looking at is that right now we eat not unlike 100, 200, 300 years ago, where we were eating purely sustenance, mostly sustenance. Right now we eat for all sorts of reasons. We eat because we're bored. We eat because we are, you know, we're in a social situation. We eat because we're stressed. We eat for multiple various reasons when, you know, maybe food doesn't even need to be there. We're just eating because, you know, that's the habit of us human nature to eat when we have these emotions, right? So I was wondering, like, what happens if we can separate these emotions from food? And I was looking and uh, researching into, you know, what technologies are out there. And I discovered, for example, in Singapore, they have made this cup called the e-lemonade. And this cup, you can just you know, it's full of electrodes, you connected it, and they pour water in. And when you drink it, it tastes like lemonade. And that was really revealing for me, because all of a sudden, I realized, wow, you can decouple, you can separate taste from food. Yeah, <laughs> and wow. so I took off the part, the rest of the research, I found out that there are people working on how do you do digital texture in food? So you put electrodes along the jar line and you will replicate kind of the chew, chewingness of your food when there's, when there's no food involved. So you can replicate now texture. Uh, there are other projects where uh, this one is fascinating to me, which is Neri Osman at MIT. She had designed the microbiome jacket where you have bacterias and biomes inside this jacket that are photosynthesizable uh, and they could absorb sunlight and through your skin, you can absorb energy. So maybe in the future, you can decouple energy from food. And so if you can decouple those things, the beauty of it is that you can recouple them in any way you want that you won't even find in nature. Mm. So uh, that opens up a whole new ball game of you know what that the future of food looks like. Maybe in the future you have the Spotify for food, where you can get recombinants of different things together, like designer meat. You have cultured beef cells mixed with uh, good fat cells from fish, and you have a meat that you would have never have in nature because they just doesn't exist. Yeah, there's a lot of possibilities happening in all front and we kind of sort of have to start preparing ourselves for it. Yeah, gosh, incredible. That's amazing. I'm just thinking actually, so Greta really loves crunchy food. (laughs) 
So that would be perfect. You could make anything crunchy, Gret. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then I also, it just painted such a picture for me when you talked about the microbiome jacket. It's like, I'm just going to wear your jacket for dinner right now. You know, here's my jacket for dinner. Wow, incredible. And, and it's really amazing to me that your journey, you know, where you've come from and to get into a role like this must be just kind of a dream. It is. It is a dream job. So one question that we ask all of our guests is, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self now that you've done what you've done? Oh, wow. I think the main thing I would say is to never doubt yourself. Do you know that moment when you're when you are ice skating or on your bike and you have this one second of doubt and then you fall? Yes, I do. I think we all have it in our lives and we question ourselves, we doubt ourselves. And, and then that's when we start making mistakes. We started to fail. Not to say that failure is, you know, a, a bad thing. You were able to learn from your failure. That's great. But if you can think confidently about yourself and stop questioning yourself, I think that will probably, you're probably able to move further and farther along than when you do. So that would be my advice. Yeah. How have you stopped doubting yourself? What have you done? I would go back to creating, go back to my strengths, go back to, you know, idea formation, because you know, those are kind of sort of my schema of how the, op- the world operates is starting from the idea. And I know that I, I have that handled. So always go back to your strength when you're in doubt and then have your bearings and then move right on, go outside of the boundaries again. Yeah. Yeah. So you sort of you come back to your comfort zone and then you get outside of it again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's great advice. And I have a second one, actually, which is I've been going by this for a while now. Uh, this one is that I always want to surround myself with people who make me a better person. Recently, I've added a, a second line to this, which is that I only hope that I could be the person who make other people better as well. That's beautiful. Well, it's a really beautiful note to wrap up on, Cecilia. Thank you so much for your time. And it's just fascinating and particularly because it's, you know, morning and a stormy morning and that in Barcelona. But if listeners were interested to learn more about you or the amazing kind of work Alpha is doing or any of your other ventures such as All Women, where should they go? So I, I have my own speaker website. Would love to share that with everyone. Yeah. Uh, it's just Cecilia Tam, T-H-A-M dot com. Fantastic. We'll, we'll put that on the episode show notes page at our website as well, for sure. Well, Cecilia, thank you again. It's been fascinating. I'm about to go, or we're both probably about in this dinner time now in Australia. I'm not quite sure what I'll be thinking as I chew whatever morsels I'm going to be eating as I can consider, well, how will this look and feel in um, 10, 12 (laughs) years' time? You've really given us some amazing food for thought, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you both. It has been super fun chatting with you both and enjoy your dinner and uh, talk soon. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. What a fascinating and thought-provoking conversation that was. Certainly was. Thinking about how we may eat in the future, that is still blowing my mind. 
I hadn't heard about that experiment where they grew a heart in a spinach leaf. I mean, had you? Seriously, that's incredible. No, no, it's completely mad. And I absolutely love how we uncover those little snippets that are totally extraordinary. Absolutely, me too. Cecilia really has a very unique role at Alpha, doesn't she? Yeah. And I guess her very diverse background probably plays really well into her role as a technology and future gazer, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, because it really is quite a unique mix from growing up and experiencing cultures in Asia, America and now Europe to studying architecture at Harvard and then to founding co-working and maker spaces and a women's tech academy. I'm sure that kind of diversity absolutely has to help her imagine the unimaginable when it comes to trying to predict the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. As always, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please, if you haven't already, rate and review our podcast and share it with a friend. It makes what we do so worthwhile. It certainly does. And stay tuned for our next episode with Mandy Birch, who is focused these days completely on quantum computing. Should be fascinating. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.